to Off the Cuff Postscript. I'm Darren Chohan, and unfortunately, I'm not joined here today by my uh, wonderful co-host, Matt Butler, uh, due to a scheduling conflict, but uh, the show must go on, and we will uh, we will do our best in his absence, and we'll dedicate this episode to, to him. So here on Postscript tonight, I've got with me... Uh, Molly Reynolds again. Uh, you guys probably heard her last week, and if not, go check her out. Uh, she gave us some really good insight and something I learned uh, where we're not going to have, uh, as private employees, um, privacy rights that are legislated, but uh, coming October 11th, uh, there will be new legislation for electronic monitoring, which you all should look uh, look out for. So if you missed it, go check it out. Great information, uh, and and uh, on Postscript today, we're going to be talking about uh, consumer surveillance. I think it's a topic that we get asked questions a lot about, um, and you know, a lot happens a lot in neighbor disputes. It's we're seeing this more and more now, where neighbors are upset that cameras are pointed at their houses and in their windows, and and we know what do we do about that? Uh, and so Molly's joining me. Welcome back uh, to the show, Molly. Thanks, Darren. Uh, and so why don't we get right into it? Um, you know, we're talking about consumer surveillance. We're talking about video cameras, audio. Uh, what uh, what does that world look like? What what can our listener take away from, you know, can they have a camera situated on their house somewhere and that's okay? Well, um, I'm going to start with a plea that I don't think most people will follow, which is okay. to consider reading the privacy policy of any new piece of technology. Uh, And that includes surveillance cameras because most of them are wired tech in some way where you're actually gonna get an electronic feed of the recordings Um, or sometimes the doorbells that are cameras, et cetera. Um, And even if you're not gonna read the whole privacy policy of a piece of technology, because I'm living in the real world, um, I think the takeaway is there are some restrictions depending on where you live about what you can do. Um, but also there are some privacy settings in some of this technology that's worth checking out. So let me just start, as you said, with probably the most common question, which is either I want a surveillance camera outside my house or my neighbor has a surveillance camera pointed at my house. <laughs> what can we do? Yep. Um, so, you know, the biggest, I think, uh, question that I get is, you know, what law applies to this? And very similar to what we were talking about with employees, most of the time there's no legislation that applies to this. If you're an individual, you're not subject to most privacy legislation. Um, if you were on the really extreme end of things, pointing a surveillance camera um, for perhaps lewd purposes, you might be under the criminal code, under a voyeurism type of offense, um, or you know potentially in a wiretap type of offense, if you were actually recording conversations without people's knowledge, that's not most of these cases that we hear about. Um, So I think one thing that's really important to check whether you have your own camera or a neighbor has a camera that you're concerned about is whether in your municipality or region there's a bylaw. More and more we're seeing these across Ontario. So municipal bylaws that actually set out some rules and parameters around surveillance cameras. And where those exist, most of the time, the basic rule is you can have a camera pointed at your own property. And sometimes other people will be caught by that. Somebody walking by the sidewalk right in front of your house, a courier coming up your laneway. But you cannot have a camera pointed across the street or beside you to your neighbor's house. 
So that's kind of the main line that we need to draw. Is it to look at your own property and there's a little bit of accidental capture of other people? Or can somebody say that you're really pointing that at somebody else's property, which would be offside those bylaws where they exist? That brings me to my question about whether or not, like where the, where the line, we where we can draw the line where you know where can those cameras be be located especially if someone has the argument well it's just on the front of my house and it's recording most of my driveway or lawn um, because I want to see who's going across my lawn but it ends up capturing the roadway and then also my neighbor's house is in the picture uh, is there some sort of guideline that people can use to figure out if that is what they're doing is okay or to who to consult whether or not they can be doing what they're doing well, here's my very practical guideline. So whether there's a bylaw in your region that actually covers this, so mm-hmm. a bylaw enforcement officer might be coming up to your house or not, right? And where there isn't a bylaw, really the risk is your neighbor sues you if this gets really heated, and then you are having to you know, perhaps put some evidence before the court. So in either case, if you had to show the footage from your camera would you feel comfortable justifying that that is a camera pointed at your property? So it's not about particular percentages or degrees of the angle necessarily, but you know there are scenarios where a camera on a front porch really doesn't pick up much of the person's own property. It is aimed directly across the street. Maybe it's right. zoomed in on the door of the neighbor where there's already an acrimonious dispute. We've seen it. Um, But if it's largely pointing at your porch because you're worried about packages being stolen at your lawn because you're worried maybe about dogs dropping there or people crossing it um, and there's a little bit of your neighbors in view. I mean, I think from a bylaw perspective and then from a litigation perspective, most people would say, you know, we can see the intention that this is to survey your own property. That's allowed. And you're not trying to invade the privacy of your neighbors. So It's really kind of what would you feel comfortable standing up in public and justifying as I think the best rule of thumb. Right. And, and do you have an example or know of, you know, some municipalities, like who has these bylaws in force already? Or do you have any idea which municipalities do? There's a bylaw in Hamilton. um, And I believe a couple of other towns like Stratford or St. Catharines in Southern Ontario There has been a lot more discussion in the last two years, I think, as a lot of this technology has become cheaper and more Mm -hmm. popular um, in other regions about implementing it. Um, And no surprise, I think the higher density the municipality, the more likely this is going to be on the council agenda. Um, But certainly, you know, it is a concern that we do hear from across the province. Yeah, and I I guess... I would also think that COVID might have accelerated this more people spending time at home uh, and getting into fights with their neighbors and then, you know, wanting to surveil them. So that takes care of at least the video camera issue. But what other types of, um, you know, consumer surveillance are out there? Like what what do do you do any work with like drone uh, footage or privacy with respect to drone footage? So before I get there. Um, I do just want to make one more point around around the home surveillance, which is it is important, as I said, to think about the companies that are involved in building this tech. And a lot of these cameras are storing your footage on the cloud. And so you should be thinking about where is that being stored for how long and who has access to it. And related to that, 
you know, a lot of what we're seeing nowadays is um, if there's a crime in a neighborhood, police will go door to door and ask for footage. So you're absolutely welcome to volunteer that to police if you want to, but you're not required to. And I think it's important for people to kind of understand the line between their rights. You know, unless the police come with a court order that requires you to hand over evidence, you don't have to do it. You can if you want to be helpful. Um, But, you know, there are different scenarios. Um, But you should also keep in mind that, you know, the technology company that might be storing this data might get a court order from the police as well. They might get a request as well um, for footage. And so just keep in mind, I think, with a lot of this technology um, that you may not be the only person who really has control or access to it. And unfortunately, we've heard in the news for several years now, you know, stories about interior cameras like baby monitors getting hacked Um, and, you know, people from around the world kind of being able to peer into your home because it is a camera that's connected to the internet. So just important to be mindful of that in terms of placement, even within your house, um, even when you're not warring with your neighbors. Um, On the drone side, uh, really good point. Um, Unless you are using probably one of the tiniest versions of drones that are basically toys for kids, you should really be researching the laws in your region before you're out flying drones anywhere except for outside your property. And even then, I think you'll want to be conscious of it. There are federal aviation regulations around where you can fly a drone. There are provincial regulations in many cases, municipal ones, and they can cross all kinds of different boundaries in terms of where can you fly it, how high, what buildings are nearby, what critical infrastructure is nearby, including even power lines sometimes. Um, So the little ones are usually fun and can't fly high enough that it's really a concern. Um, But if you're getting into the larger ones that do, you know, pretty impressive photography, even some of the ones that the realtors use, um, you do really need to be mindful of what the rules are in your particular location. And if you take it off on a weekend on a little road trip, the rules might be totally different. So keep that in mind as well. You just brought up a good point that I've questioned about a lot because um, I often will see drones flying over my house. Um, but I think from what I gather, their realtor or real estate agents doing camera work for their sale opportunities. Um, again, do do I have to be consulted or should I be asked, okay, we're flying this drone. It may, it may capture your property. Or is that something that's again, governed by either federal provincial municipal laws in that area um, that may say, well, you know, you're too close to the airport, you know, whatever the laws may be there. Uh, does the person who's flying the drone have an obligation to go check with the people who may be captured within that footage, uh, what they say? Like, is there any sort of requirement there? So it could be. Um, Sometimes, you know, if you are a realtor, for example, if you're acting on behalf of a business, then you are going to be under some of the private sector privacy laws that say you can't collect personal information without consent. That would include someone's face who's walking by, um, you know, maybe some information about somebody. Uh, If there was a package label with their name and address on the porch and it got caught, it doesn't usually include just your house or just the um, number of your house on the street, for example, uh, without any additional information. So an overhead view of your house, probably not something that's Mm -hmm. protected by those privacy laws. But um, 
a lot of this too is sometimes there's conduct that isn't really lawful, but people get away with it because we're doing that on a small enough scale. When we scale that up, think about the Google car or the Apple car that drive around and map, you know, the entire country um, mm. for Google or Apple Maps purposes with the big camera on the roof of the car. They actually did get in trouble a few years ago. And Google is required when they take those images and upload them onto Google Maps to blur out the faces of um, anybody who's just caught walking down the sidewalk or what happens to be in the shot. And so if you're a smaller business, you're probably going to want to think about that before, for example, you go and take a bunch of footage and then put it in an ad or put it on your website because um, you don't want to get caught in a scenario like that where you didn't really think about investing in a blurring technology, but you also weren't trying to publicize people's faces. Maybe you just ask them, to your point, Darren, and find out if they consent and then you don't have to worry about this. Right. And I feel like you know, nowadays, a lot of people will avoid asking others for consent. And I think why I asked that question is to encourage people to ask others if they are doing this video surveillance and video footage, because it, I think, you know, in the world that we live in, sometimes it's, um, you'd be surprised by the answer. And so if, you know, if you want to do something and do a particular shot or want to get some, some footage of something, um, I don't know, I would say just ask first and then, and see what the response is you get. And sometimes you'll get a no, but I mean, at least that way, you know, and, and then you can go into whether or not to invest in blurring technology or whether to, whether or not to get the shot at nighttime when people aren't around or, or change the time location or date or whatever that it is you're doing. So, yeah, I mean, we get a lot of questions about drone use and um, it's becoming more prevalent because drones, again, I think it goes back to your point when you say this technology is becoming more affordable, right? So more and more people are experimenting with this technology, uh, but they don't necessarily know how to use it. And and then also back to your original point, read the read the manual and the privacy policies in that manual because if that footage is being stored on the cloud, they are obligated to tell you where it's being stored and that it may be released by without even your control, right? Like you just have no say in whether or not that footage gets released um, by signing up for the user account, for example, right? Exactly. And on that note, if I can rant a little bit about home sure. assistance, I think very much related. Yeah. And let me be the first to say, I'm a privacy lawyer. I have more than one home assistant. So I am not telling people not to use it. <laughs> All of this consumer tech it means you have to balance, right? What are the risks? What are the options? And what are the benefits? And convenience is a huge benefit. So I'm not, I'm not here to tell anyone not to use it. Um, but if you think about the home assistants or the you know personal assistants on our phones that we have, not a lot of us stop and think about where is this information being stored and for how long and who can get access to it. Um, but you've probably heard rumors about the fact that they could be recording all the time, or they might be very sensitive on the trigger words and recording conversations when you're not actually asking a question. Um, and we've already started to see in the U.S. Uh, a lot of litigation, including criminal cases, where law enforcement are going to you know, Google, Amazon, the other big tech companies that offer these, and subpoenaing transcripts of the conversations within a home where a crime took place. And you would be astounded at how detailed these transcripts are. I mean, there's a lot of information that is not somebody asking their home assistant a question. 
They are background conversations. And look, again, from a balanced perspective, sometimes that's really important evidence to solve a crime. And other times it's incredibly invasive and can be used against a victim of crime. So think about that. I don't think from a practical perspective that most people are unplugging their home assistant every time they're trying to have a private conversation. Um, but what I would recommend from a practical perspective is, you know, think about that in terms of how many you have and where you place them. Um, and then also spend a little bit of time just looking at the privacy settings in the app for any of these home assistants, because sometimes you actually can upgrade from the default privacy level and it doesn't cost you anything. You know, it's not a different membership. You just have to take a couple of steps to actually set your um, app settings, or your device settings in a way where it might collect less information or share it less broadly. That's terrifying to know. Um, it kind of reminds me too of when I, I'll be having a conversation with my wife about mattresses or something. And then like my entire like advertising feed is full of mattress advertisements. Like I think that that to me is one of the most, you know, common offenders. Um, but, but realizing that these home assistants can, I didn't know that, that they can be, you can subpoena the transcripts and you would presumably probably not have any even notice of that. They could just go get it, get a court order vis-a-vis -vis Google and have those transcripts without even you consulting on that, right? That's exactly right. That's even more terrifying. And mind you, these tech companies are not just going to hand them out for fun. They do need a yeah. court order. Um, and, and um, you know, they have to be able to show some relevance uh, in order to get the court order. But you're absolutely right. You won't necessarily get notice and they will not ask you for permission in those cases. And so what about, so again, I guess, does that, are there, do you deal with anything on your like phone settings? Are there phone settings where you, what people could do to mitigate some of this stuff on their phones? Like are there phone privacy settings that they could use? Absolutely. And, you know, I'm not here to say that big tech is bad. So let me, let me again, just from a practical perspective, say all of the major manufacturers and sort of app uh, developers have something like a privacy questionnaire or a privacy checkup, it might be named differently. Um, whether that's in you know, your email account, whether it's in your phone, a different device, where they will go through actually and say, do you want to look at your options for how we can use your data to improve marketing, right? And targeted advertising, right. or how we can share your information or use it even for troubleshooting and um, you know, technical improvements. And you don't have to go to the highest level, but there are a lot of really interesting options out there. And I would expand that as well to say from a social media perspective, doing some of those privacy checkups on social media accounts can be really interesting. You will find out through that process what category of life you've been placed in for advertising purposes, which can be interesting and revealing. Um, but you know, I think also uh, we might talk a little bit about children's privacy. It's something that's really good to get into the habit for yourself. But I think also if you're thinking about letting your kid wear like a fitness tracker, right? One of those watches um, or use various devices or apps. It's also a good practice to get into to like teach them. How do you actually look at one of these web pages or app pages and figure out what additional privacy settings do I have and how can I maybe just minimize the footprint of what I'm going to do even when I want to use this device. Yeah, and I, that's probably a good lead-in. I mean, 
do you have uh, first, I mean, do you have any more consumer surveillance tips uh, before we do? Because I think we're at the juncture where now it makes sense to talk about, um, you know, ch- children's safety with uh, electronic devices. But are there any final thoughts you may have on the consumer surveillance bit that people can uh, people can know? Thinking about it from an online perspective. So all of these different tech devices, you typically have an online account, right? And they may be linked to other accounts. Um, you know, if you're Apple aficionado or like a Google devotee, you probably have a lot of devices that interact there. Maybe your thermostat interacts with one of those platforms as well. And I would, you know, not to scare you, just think about how many different accounts for different tech tools you have that can actually connect right back to your name, your main email address and your address. Um, and how that might actually be useful. For example, we've seen stories of like burglars targeting houses when people knew that um, somebody was going to be away from social media or from hacking into their thermostat and seeing it was on an away setting, etc. So maybe just think about using different email accounts or different usernames and doing some very kind of light things just to break up how connected our online presence might be. And change your passwords frequently and often, which they you know, say I like think, change your password with your underwear. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that really just flagged it for me to think about how much personal data these companies may or may not have on me. So I think what we'll do, uh, it's probably about time we take a break. We'll hear from our sponsor. And after that, we'll get back into uh, online safety for children. And uh, we'll hear from Molly on that. Talk soon. Weaver Simmons is Northern Ontario's largest full-service law firm. For over 90 years, Weaver Simmons has provided legal advice to its clients with three offices in Sudbury, North Bay, and Shaplow. For more information, please visit our website or feel free to give us a call. We're back. Uh, I have, again, if you haven't been listening or you're tuning in now, we have Molly Reynolds here, who's a lawyer uh, from Tories in Toronto. Uh, she practices privacy law. And I thought maybe uh, starting the segment, we'll just get into a little bit how Molly and I met. Uh, a few years ago, probably more than a few, uh, we worked together on a case uh, and we were among the first to deal with the what was new then and still fairly new now uh, and is being applied more and more. It's called the um, tort of intrusion upon seclusion. And I thought maybe we can start uh, with Molly explaining a little bit about that before we get into children's online safety, because they are they are related. So I don't know if Molly can uh, give us a little a little intro on that, and then we'll get into uh, get into the rest. Sure, and you'll use the virtual hook if it's turning into a law lecture. But um, <laughs> there's a couple of privacy torts, so civil wrongs that have been recognized in Ontario, really borrowing from the U.S. Uh, precedent on this intrusion on seclusion is the idea that somebody has come into a private place and uh, violated your privacy. Now, the case that we worked on, and I think almost all of the cases that have dealt with this since, have really been about um, going in, for example, to somebody's phone or their uh, cloud and stealing um, intimate information. Now, in some cases, that might be uh, a love rival looking at banking records. Um, and, you know, trying to use banking records of somebody in order to interfere in a family law proceeding. That was actually one of the seminal cases in Ontario where this tort was recognized. 
But there's sort of a second piece of this as well, um, which is another uh, tort called publication of private facts. And sometimes we see these together where somebody has intruded on your privacy, you know, maybe looked at some private information or taken private information and then published that. And we see that, you know, a lot nowadays with um, teenagers in particular, you know, sexting, exchanging nude photos, um, perhaps in confidentiality between them as part of their relationship. And then, you know, somebody publishing that type of uh, nude photo online or texting it to many other friends in a high school, et cetera. So that's where sort of invading someone's privacy becomes publishing private information about them once they're distributing it to somebody else. Yeah. And that's, that's more of the, along the lines of the case that we worked on. And I think um, nowadays we see that so often, uh, you know, these, the, it, and it's really prevalent with, with high school kids and people who don't necessarily understand the ramifications of what they're doing. Um, and it, it often causes a lot of problems as, as we saw, and you can see for individuals who are, you know, subject to this. So uh, for those who are listening, at least, you know, be careful with what you're sending out online, sending to each other. Uh, and I think, Molly, and you can maybe agree with me or, or disagree with me here, but I think um, that when you send something, assume the world is watching. I think that that would be my my guidance to those who are are participating in those things, because um, if you're not comfortable, and as you said earlier, would you be comfortable standing up in you know, in court and justifying if you're recording your neighbor, I think the same thing should apply if you're sending these photos or keeping these images or doing whatever you're doing. Would you be comfortable if the world saw what you're sending? I don't know if that's a, a an appropriate way to look at it, but I, I think that that, at least if you go in with that mindset, perhaps uh, you can avoid some, some problems later on. So I think you're right. I'm still going to disagree with you in two ways, okay. Jordan. Um, not, none of what you said is wrong, but I think... Um, the first area that I'll push back a little bit is this is happening, right? And for mm -hmm. anyone listening, if you're in the shoes of the parent or the guardian, you have very little control um, mm -hmm. and you need to sort of meet your teens or I hate to say it, preteens where they are in the reality that they live in, which is this is as central a part of relationships nowadays as writing notes in class was maybe for us or writing love letters was maybe for the generation before mm -hmm. trading intimate fit photos is incredibly common and parents are always shocked at how young it starts and how prevalent it is and um, so that's one thing is you know we have to accept where everybody is and think about harm mitigation the other piece of it and certainly you know from my feminist perspective is this is a form of sexual expression. And especially if we were talking about adults, um, you know, we shouldn't be telling people not to express themselves in certain ways if it's consensual, right? And both mm -hmm. parties or all parties who are supposed to be involved want to take and receive this type of content. Um, and so sometimes, you know, the messaging that you should assume this could be seen by the world is absolutely accurate, but can also be a little bit shaming. Right. Mm -hmm. So we need to think about ways that we can both make people aware of those risks so they can make informed decisions, which is exactly what you were saying. But also, I think, empower people with tools if they do want to engage in this type of expression. How can they do it with a little bit less risk? And so there are some um, apps that might reduce risk because, you know, they make it very difficult to download 
or to forward content, none of them are foolproof. Um, you can take a screenshot or a photo with a different device of anything, even if it disappears in three seconds. So none of them are foolproof, but it can sometimes help reduce risk. Um, a big one is maybe you want to take a photo that doesn't have your face in it, right? Or doesn't have other identifying information just to kind of reduce some of the potential exposure if you would be upset if that got sent to other people. Um, and we've even seen, you know, some recommendations that go so far as consider learning software that would actually put a watermark on a photo so you know who you're sending it to. That's really interesting. And I mean, I do agree with you and your points there on on those issues. And I do I do see where you say it is it is definitely a sense of expression and people shouldn't be deprived of that just because there is this risk of it being shared. And um, on that topic, then what what are the legal ramifications for somebody or what does one do, I guess, when if, if faced with an issue? Uh, yes, I think there's there's big sticks and there's little sticks. So the big sticks are kind of the traditional legal system. And it is important to know since 2014, the non-consensual distribution of intimate images. So that's sort of when nude content, for example, um, gets sent to other people or gets posted online without consent of the um, subject of the content, it is illegal. So it's a criminal offense now um, and you know can be punishable by jail time as well as fines. There have been more criminal um, prosecutions in this area than many people would expect over the last eight years. Um, and some people are getting a few years of prison um, in these situations. And there's also uh, civil liability. Um, so those uh, torts that you were talking about at the outset, Darren, you know, you might be able to seek damages as well as injunctions um, in terms of just preventing somebody from posting or distributing the information any further or trying to get the court to order them to take steps to get that information down if it's been posted on the Internet or get it back from third parties. But, you know, there are some smaller um, tools available. So if this happens in a school environment, sometimes going to the school administration um, can be useful to try to get their assistance in stopping distribution, you know, reaching out sometimes to the parents or guardians of other people who are involved. Um, and I can't leave this point without just emphasizing um, that this is just like sex ed and just like other types of risk mitigation between parents and children. And it's really uncomfortable, but I think parents do need to have these conversations, um, you know, with their kids, um, both about, you know, some of the risks around sharing this content and also the risks of what can happen to them if they share it more broadly, right? If they breach somebody's confidence when they've received this. And not that I should be giving parenting advice on this podcast, but also just trying to create that environment where somebody doesn't think they're going to get in trouble for having exchanged this type of content if they're trying to really come to their parent with real problems, right? Because what we're trying to avoid is criminal prosecution, whether you're the victim or the perpetrator. I don't think anybody really wants that in this situation. Right. And do you think it's important, and I think going on that line of thought, um, that part of the sex education, should there be an element in curriculum about sexting? Absolutely. Um, and I am very cautious about wading into the very political area of what the sex ed curriculum should be. 
But, you know, there are some higher principles here that go outside of relationships and sex education. So the idea of keeping confidences, right? The idea of whether you're in a friendship or a relationship, being honest and having integrity um, and not necessarily gossiping, right? These are some core principles that really underlie a lot of the harms in this area that I think schools, parents, communities could teach without necessarily getting too political and into the questions we were talking about, like letting teenagers be free to express themselves, that might be a little bit more difficult for them to message. I did want to get into a little bit, uh, I know our listeners do also enjoy hearing some of the the legal stuff about this. And just for people to know, um, litigation, you know, if you do commence litigation in this area, or generally speaking, civil litigation in, in any area, but um, something like this could take a long time. And that's and I think when you get into your bigger sticks and smaller sticks. If you are commencing litigation, uh, there are definite tiers of litigation and how long it's going to take you. Uh, and as far as like evidentiary burdens and thresholds and, um, it can get, it can get really expensive and take a long time. Um, and so you really have to balance that against the extra harm that it's going to cause either the victim or, uh, the family or the people associated around that, because, um, litigation digs up a lot of other things that aren't necessarily foreseeable. Uh, and so one should go into litigation, especially in a sensitive area like this with caution, um, not to discourage it, but it should be um, a consideration at least that, that you should undertake. So we hope that, you know, you guys take away some of those principles and uh, while we can't get too political here, while we can't get too, um, into all of that, I think the general principles, like you said, the you know the general themes of, hey, how do I be a good person in society? Well, that means that if somebody tells me a secret, I should know that keeping that secret is something I should do rather than sharing it with others unless otherwise forced to or whatever the case may be. So um, I think that that's a great analysis and you know it's very important in today's day and age that we look at those things and I appreciate your thoughts on that uh, and now moving on to another topic you wanted to get into um let's hear about that sure continuing on my theme of unsolicited parenting advice on on our legal uh podcast here but um you know in the area of children's privacy um there are I think increasingly more tools and more sort of third-party technologies that are involved in children's education nowadays and university education for that matter as well, post-secondary. But thinking about it from the children's perspective, you know, there are all kinds of in-classroom interactive tools, applications, um, you know, sites and platforms that are being used. And especially, you know, in remote learning, um, or hybrid learning that we see there are all kinds of technological um, tools and, and different apps and programs that students and parents are being asked to use. And it's another one of these areas where it's almost so commonplace, it's easy to forget about privacy. Um, but I think really useful to try to teach kids um, early to think about it, and certainly as parents and guardians, to be thinking again about you know, who actually developed this and who is collecting what information about the student, you know, the child um, and why and how are they allowed to use it? And so this is not me telling everybody to read privacy policies again, although it's encouraged, um, but ask your school, right? So schools should have privacy policies in Ontario. 
um, under their own legal obligations. School boards usually are the ones that would publish them as opposed to the individual school. And they should talk about the different types of information that they collect and give some information about some of these third party um, technologies that they might be employing. And if you don't see that, um, and you're not getting sort of, you know, consent forms or permission forms from a school to use a particular platform. Um, you know, I think people should feel comfortable going to speak to the teacher or the principal, sometimes maybe a trustee or a superintendent, just to understand, you know, what's the process for a particular teacher deciding on um, a particular tool that students might use in class. And a lot of these are designed for children and are incredibly privacy protective. So I don't want to scare people. Um, but that doesn't mean that sometimes a very innovative and fun tool isn't actually thinking about children and children's privacy to the level that we would want. And so I think it's just, you know, yet another area to pay attention, um, especially if we've got, for example, any type of tool where students are able to interact live or otherwise with people outside of the school. Um, you know, thinking about some of the dangers there, thinking about some of the connectivity um, and maybe talking to, you know, kids or talking to the school about limiting, for example, sharing photos of themselves or limiting sharing some of their own information if there is that type of, you know, global connection. Um, so there's no one size fits all. It doesn't mean that all technology in schools is bad. You know, again, most of it is really good. But um, we do have to think about, I think, the resourcing of teachers and school boards. And sometimes, you know, they may not be able to um, send home a, a note or an email um, every time there's a new tool being used. So, you know, if you see something that seems unusual or maybe like highly connected to the Internet that your kid is using in class, I think that's the time to start asking questions. And just, again, thinking about can we make this a bit privacy more more protective, a bit more privacy protective without, um, you know, preventing the student from participating and, you know, continuing on with the learning objective. Um, a big one for me just generally, I think, in terms of whether it's these educational tools or social media is, again, just thinking about how can we disconnect our online profile a little bit. Um, so that may be, again, using different email addresses or usernames for kids on, on their accounts um, and on our own social media, thinking a little bit about maybe not posting, for example, a back to school photo that has a kid's name, picture, grade, school, <laughs> maybe in front of your house that has your address, right? That's a lot of information in a totally normal photo. It's so funny you said that because as you're talking, I'm like, I'm going to ask her about this because you see it all the time. Um, people posting like where their kids are going to school and, and all their information about their children. And, you know, I see it and it horrifies me because, you know, the, the lawyer in me and the, the skeptic in me is like, oh, my God, guys, you need to don't do that. Like, that's like full pod. Like you're, you're literally you may as well give the person on the Internet uh, your kid because they know exactly everything about your child. And so if, if you're listening and you're a parent, again, we're not on a parenting podcast, but um, parenting and privacy rights go hand in hand or pri at least protecting your children's privacy online and making sure that we do that. And um, I think that's about all the time that we have today. I do appreciate you taking the time to join us on our show today. It's uh, It's been a really great uh, catching up with you, seeing you again. I haven't seen you in a long time. Thanks, Darren. Thank you, guys. And so uh, that concludes this week's episode of uh, Off the Cuff Postscript. Um, stay tuned next week. You'll see us back in studio. 
We'll see you next time. My name's Darren Chohan. Take care. Mm-hmm.